Uh, well, good morning once again, uh, sisters and brothers. Can I get you to turn with me, please, uh, back to our uh, Old Testament reading, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, either in your uh, Bible or in your device, uh, the order of service. Uh, be helpful to have that with you. Uh, let me lead us in prayer uh, as, we, as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and we ask that as we look at this passage together, uh, that your spirit will be pointing us to Jesus, uh, that we might uh, love him and appreciate him more, uh, and that we might show um, his character to others as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had someone do a great kindness for you that you never expected? Or have you ever done that for anyone else? Uh, in our passage today, we will see a great kindness being done in fulfillment of a promise. And as we do, we will learn how to relate to the God who has been kind to us and be challenged to reflect that kindness to others. Before we get there, let me remind you of where we're up to in the story of 2 Samuel. In the past few weeks, we've seen how God established David as king over ancient Israel. And a couple of weeks ago, we heard God making great promises to David. God promises that his kingly line would be established forever, that the son of David would be the son of God, that the son of David would build God's house. And you know, those promises were fulfilled in part by Solomon. They were inherited by all the kings of Israel, and ultimately they came true in Jesus. For Jesus is the true son of David, the anointed one. Right? In fact, the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ both mean anointed one. And so David, the anointed one, points forward to Jesus, the ultimate anointed one. David, God's chosen king, points forward to Jesus, God's ultimate chosen king. David, the man after God's own heart, points forward to the one who truly and perfectly reveals God's heart. And so in many ways, David is a shadow, a model, a sign that points to Jesus, the reality. For example, last week we saw how David defeated many kings who were his enemies, put them to shame. And we know the day will come when those who oppose Jesus will also be defeated and put to shame. But we also heard of one king who made peace with David and gave him his treasures. And those treasures were set aside for the future temple. And that is what we need to do with Jesus. Instead of fighting him, instead of wanting to be independent from him, we need to humble ourselves and submit to him. We need to give him our treasures, our time, our talents, our money, our everything for the temple that he's building the temple of living stones, of people from all over the world who worship him. So as we read 2 Samuel about David, we see how he, imperfect as he is, anticipates the true king. And we learn how to relate to Jesus. And that is certainly true of our passage today. The passage begins with David asking a question in verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now the word kindness there is the Hebrew word hesed, which Tim Chiang introduced us to a few weeks ago. Now kindness is a good translation, but no word can capture the whole thing. Right? It, uh, it, the word it implies loyalty, loyal love, or, or loving favor based on a prior relationship or promise. Hesed is sometimes translated mercy, sometimes kindness, sometimes goodness, sometimes loving kindness. Uh, the closest New Testament equivalent is grace, God, God treating us far better than we deserve. 
And David wants to show this kind of kindness to someone for the sake of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul, who was David's predecessor and persecutor. Jonathan was also David's best friend. But he had been killed in the same battle against the Philistines which took his father. Back in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan actually acknowledged God's plan for, for, for David to be king. Uh, in verses 14 and 16, after he helps us, David escape his father, he implies David will be king, and he says to him, if I'm still alive, when this happens, when I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love. That's that hesed word again, from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. At the end of that chapter, same incident, when he's farewelling David, he mentions this covenant again. He says to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And so now, many years later, David remembers his covenant with Jonathan, and he wants to do something about it. And so he asks, La, is there anyone left in Saul's house that he might show him hesed? And it turns out, in verse 2, there's a servant in Saul's house whose name is Ziba. So they bring him to David. And we see their conversation in verses 2 to 4. Are you Ziba? King asks him. I am your servant, he replies. Then David says, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Right? That's that word kindness, that's that hesed word there again. But we realize now it's not just about Jonathan. David wishes to show the kindness of God. God has been loving and kind and loyal to fulfill his promise to David, treating David far better than he deserved. And David, emulating God's kindness, wants to lovingly and loyally and kindly fulfill his promise for someone in the house of Saul. Because he is taking after his God. Ziba answers, there is a son of Jonathan. Then he quickly adds, he is crippled in his feet. Ziba might have had reasons to be less enthusiastic about David's thought process, but apart from highlighting the disability of this man, he, he hides it well. Though if he misunderstood David's word about the blind and the lame back in chapter 5, maybe he thinks David doesn't have much time for lame people. But David is unperturbed. Where is he, he asks. He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Right? He's taken refuge in the home of this wealthy, influential man on the other side of the Jordan River away from all the politics and activity of Jerusalem. And so in verse 5, David sends to, to bring this crippled man to Jerusalem. And thus summoned, he is brought to David. And all of this is from David's initiative. Friends, David took the initiative in showing kindness, in seeking out and bringing Jonathan's son to himself. It was linked to his prior promises, but he took the initiative. It's not that this crippled man had some kind of leverage on him or could demand something from him. No, no, this was David's idea. 
because he wanted to show the faithful, loyal love and kindness of his God. And brothers and sisters, the faithful love and kindness of our God has been shown to us first and foremost in Jesus. We had no claim on God. We were sinners who deserved nothing but God's punishment. But God made promises in the past that one day he would save us. And he kept those promises in Jesus. Though he was the eternal son of God, he came to earth as a man. He lived a sinless life. He died a painful and shameful death, executed on a cross. And as he did so, he bore the just wrath of a holy God against our sin on our behalf. He took the initiative to come and save us. And not only that, he rose from the dead as the Lord and King. He is the rightful ruler of all. And he takes the initiative to bring us into his kingdom. He sends his spirit to summon us through the gospel by his initiative, not ours. And he brings us into his presence to show us kindness. What David did for that crippled man, Jesus does for us. And he takes the initiative to do so. Well, the next section focuses on how this crippled man responds to David. Um, imagine you're an employee in a large company and you're summoned to your CEO's office. Or if you're a student, imagine you're being summoned to see the headmaster. Now, that might have happened to some of you already, isn't it? Uh, and I'm sure if that happens, it's, it's a little bit scary. It would have been very scary for this guy. Uh, the narrative now turns to him, and we're finally told his name. He is, in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And when we read that, we remember that actually we have met him before. Five chapters before this, in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told uh, what happened to him when Saul and Jonathan were killed. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news came about Saul and Jonathan from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So you see, Mephibosheth became crippled, at least indirectly, because the people around him were so scared of what would happen to him when the new regime came into power. For in the nations around Israel at the time, a new king would quickly kill all possible heirs of the former king so that no one could challenge his position. And when Saul and Jonathan died, people thought that was what's going to happen to Mephibosheth. Just incidentally, wherever you stand on Malaysian politics, one thing we can be thankful for is this. Our nation has managed to change governments twice since 2018 with no killings or violence associated with it. Right? Before that, we never changed governments. We never knew if we'd be able to do it or not. But we did it twice, and it was okay. No matter what you think about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, we can be thankful for that maturing of our democracy. Anyway, back to Mephibosheth. David called him from the safety of his benefactor across the Jordan, summoned him to Jerusalem. His messengers might have said to him, 
Don't worry, lah, you know, he wants to show kindness to you. But of, of course you worry, right? When you're powerless and you're summoned to someone who has all the power in the country, even the power of life and death, and you know that he might have reason to kill you? In verse 6, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, comes to David and he falls on his face before David and pays homage, bowing prostrate before him in humility and submission. David calls his name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth responds, Behold, I am your servant. That, that's the right way to respond to God's chosen king. And David can probably see how nervous Mephibosheth is. So he assures him in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. David's intentions towards him are loving, not hostile. And then he reveals his plan. And it involves two things. Firstly, he says in verse 7, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. David will give Mephibosheth back his inheritance that he lost. What belongs to Saul will go to him. But that's not just the inheritance that he gave him. He gives him the gift of relationship. For he continues in verse 7, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, Mephibosheth cannot repay David. He has no cards to play. All he can do is bow in humility and submission once again. But this time, not so much in fear, but in amazement. Saying in verse 8, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Brothers and sisters, you and I who have been shown kindness by Jesus are just like Mephibosheth, aren't we? God called us. He revealed himself to us. And encountering God would have been a scary thing, wasn't it? He's a creator. We are the creatures. Plus, some more, we are part of the human family that have rebelled against him. Plus, some more, we ourselves have sinned against him. And so, he's, he, he, he's, twice over, we deserve his wrath. And the only right way to approach him was to bow before him in trembling and fear, knowing that he's got all the cards. We've got none. He's got all the power. We've got none. It would be perfectly just for him to, to condemn us to hell for eternity. But when God called us, he didn't call us for judgment. He called us to show his loving kindness, his hesed, his grace to us in Jesus Christ. His intentions towards us were loving, not hostile. And he revealed his plan for us. It involved two things. First of all, he would restore our inheritance. What Adam lost in the fall, he would give back to us. That place in the garden that we have no more. We are given an even better place in the city. Where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Where together we can experience God's blessing for eternity. And join him in his work of properly ruling creation. 
But it's not just his inheritance he says he will give us. It's the second thing is that gift of relationship. He is our God. We are his people. And we shall always eat at his table. Enjoying him and his blessings as part of his household. What a wonderful thing God has given to us. And so like Mephibosheth, we respond in worship. We bow before him in grateful awe, amazed by his grace that saved a wretch like me. Well, the next thing we see in this story is how David acts on his gracious intentions. He does it. He fulfills it. He calls Ziba and says to him in verse 9, All that belong to Saul and his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Uh, no surprises there uh, for us. It's consistent with what we've read already. But it might have been surprising for Ziba. Because immediately we're told after this that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants. So he's actually a pretty wealthy man. And we wonder if maybe he had appropriated some of what belonged to Saul for himself. Writer doesn't tell us, he just leaves it there. So we won't think more about it today, but he's setting things up for the next time we meet Ziba, later on in 2 Samuel. For now, though, Ziba has no choice but to comply. He says to the king in verse 11, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so David's promise is fulfilled. Mephibosheth eats at David's table like one of the king's sons. He himself has a young son, verse 12, whose name is Mika. So Jonathan's line is preserved and they will carry on. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. They work for him, and he gets income from the inheritance. But Mephibosheth himself, verse 13, lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And that, my friends, is how a man who at the end of verse 13, the author points out to us again, was lame in both his feet, who therefore could not fight and could not even work, ended up in the finest place in David's kingdom. David fulfilled his promise to Mephibosheth, and indeed his promise to Jonathan. He showed loyal, loving kindness like his God. Brothers and sisters, David's God and ours shows kindness in lovingly fulfilling his promises. And he will certainly fulfill his promises to us in Jesus. If we belong to Jesus, we know that God has taken the initiative to rescue us and call us. He has given us his spirit now as a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. So we know for certain that he will give it to us. And not only is he with us now, he will bring us that inheritance to the end where we will be with him forever. 
We can be sure of that. You know, when the day comes that we are summoned to meet Jesus in person when we die, that might be a bit scary, don't you think? It's okay, lah, if it is, because everything you do the first time is usually a bit scary. But if we are believers, then rest assured, when we get there, we will find grace. For that King is our Savior who loves us, who died to redeem us. And his intentions for us are good. He will give us our inheritance and we will enjoy fellowship at his table forever. Despite the fact that we are not only sinners, but powerless sinners, who cannot even fight or even work for our salvation, but will share with Jesus the finest place in his kingdom. For as David fulfilled his promise to Mephibosheth, God in Christ will certainly fulfill his promise to us. So how should we respond to this? Well, if you're someone who's here today or online who you're still not come to Jesus, thank you for listening and engaging with this story. Can I ask you to engage one step further? Think of yourself as being like Mephibosheth. David, of course, is like Christ. And I, as I speak to you now, I'm like one of David's messengers sent by him to summon you. So listen. You need to come to Jesus. Don't wait till you die. You come to him today. It might be scary because, yes, you really deserve his wrath, but actually he has good intentions towards you if you come to him now. Bow before him in humility and submission. Acknowledge that he is the king and you are his servant. And you will find him to be gracious and kind and loving towards you. You will find him restoring you to your inheritance and giving you a place at his table. You will be overwhelmed by his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness. And looking back, you will say, as the rest of us do, why have you done this for me, undeserving as I am? And like the rest of us, you'll be thoroughly amazed by God's grace. And for those of us who have already received this grace, well, let's show it to others. David does what he does here because he's trying to reflect the character of God who showed that hesed to him. We should do that as well. Who is it that you can show loyal love and kindness to, even though they have no hold on you? Who can you be gracious towards, even when the world will tell you to act otherwise? You have a promise to keep, a kind of promise that ought to be kept. If it's a good promise, it's better to keep it late than never. 
What good can you do for someone who will never be able to repay you? You know, one Sabbath, when Jesus was invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, he said this to his host. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is not saying to us that we can't buy dinner for our friends or we can't enjoy a feast with the people that we love. But what he's saying is, we shouldn't just do good to people who can give back to us in some way. But like David, like Jesus, like God, we should seek out people to show kindness to in an unmerited, unexpected, unreciprocated way. You can't do that for everyone, but you can do it for someone. And if you don't know where to start, well, start by thinking about those whom you're in some kind of covenant relationship with. Do make sure that you show your loving loyalty to your spouse, to the people in your family, your growth group, your church, your workplace, your club. But then think wider as well. People who can't help you in return. God showed his kindness to David. David showed God's kindness to Mephibosheth. God showed you his kindness in Christ. Who will you show God's kindness to this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loyal, loving kindness that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you for your gracious promises of salvation that you have fulfilled for us in him and for those gracious promises for the future that you have made to us in him. Thank you for restoring our inheritance for giving us a place at your table. Help us, we pray, to be people who show your kindness to others as you have shown to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.